This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3429 for Thursday, the 23rd of September 2021. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws S01E39, Ubuntu and the Community, and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochromic, and is about 87 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, all about your favorite Debian spin, and IBM mainframes. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever fancies you tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mom! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusty guide dog, unless on speed, and QT Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Linux in Laws, Season 1, Episode 39, if I'm not completely mistaken, the one with Canonical. Martin, how are things? Yeah, things are great, Chris. It's uh, still, sun still shining in the UK. Yes. Is it COVID jab, so I'm all... Perfect. Is it a sweltering heat, like 22 degrees as well over there in the UK? No, it's it's, it's a very cool 24, I think, today. (laughs) <laughs> ice age, ice age hidden early. Apparently, the British yeah, Isles. Yeah, yeah, Too yeah. bad. So, um, how, how are you yourself today? Ca- can't complain. I mean, the effects yeah. of global warming are certainly setting in here. We are now touching, I think, twenty-seven or something like this, kind of mid-June. Okay, but this is no weather show. This is actually <laughs> Linux in laws. Your primary source. Your primary source of, or your premier premier source. It's, it's been a, it's been a long day. Your premier source for fun, humor, and of course, open source topics. And today we have no other than Reese coming from Canonical. But why don't you introduce yourself, Reese? Wait, this isn't a weather show. I thought no, I was here to no. talk about the British weather. Oh. No, sorry about this. Oh, it would be quite a long show. Unlike our usual eight hours. <laughs> oh, exactly, all of, all of five minutes, I guess. <laughs> It's raining, it's overcast, it's too hot. That'll do. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. 
Um, That's about 15 seconds, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, see you guys. It was nice. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, great to have you on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me introduce myself. So uh, my name is Reese Davis. I work for a company called Canonical, the publishers of Ubuntu. I have worked here for two, almost two years now, where I started as a product manager for a number of uh, Ubuntu or Ubuntu-related products. And then a number of months ago, I sort of made a switch to the community slash advocacy team where I work with uh, my new colleagues in the community side of things. I work with developers in and outside of the Ubuntu community to, to make community events and to make uh, developing on Ubuntu a better experience. And I work with teams inside Canonical to um, help them broach and help them improve and help them in general with their sort of community initiatives. Um, I've been I've been a big fan and a big proponent of open source and all of these things for a while, although um, I haven't been in it and contributing as long as perhaps um, all three of your listeners, I think you said, um, and, and what Not they've been before. up to. But for now, oh, I apologize. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, I've just I've just always been a big fan of all of. Or of the open source, I've I've drunk all the Kool Aid, and now I'm and now I'm really in, and hoping to hoping to answer you guys' questions. Hopefully, answer some of your uh, your hundreds of fans' questions, and um, and really just uh, just help things out. That's Thanks for having me. Yeah, our oh, pleasure. I'm tempted to say, yeah. Reese, a quick question. Um, it's it's how what we normally do is essentially we <clears throat> that has been a great intro, all right. But what drove Mr. Davis, to open source originally. Maybe you can shed some light on your early years. Sure. And how you arrived at the open source ecosystem. So uh, my early years were uh, in university, let's say. That's when I was, that's, that's when I was very young. No. Um, where I, where I was, I was learning and I was studying mechanical engineering and mechatronic engineering. And as part of that, my, um, uh, as part of that and throughout university and throughout this kind of schooling, I gravitated towards the more open source things and the, and, and Linux and doing those kinds of, um, these kinds of open projects. And in the meantime, I was uh, getting involved with various sort of different technological, te technology communities and other kinds of communities online and really starting to, uh, to see and uh, become a part of this kind of, open source community mentality and seeing the value of all of these things and how people interact and contribute and get along together and so on. Um, and so whenever I was working on uh, projects of my own, whether that was for, for school or for my own self, I, <clears throat> I would be using open source projects and, and writing code for, for them and writing documentation for them and seeing if I can contribute back to this, uh, this monolith that is open source and, uh, and I just saw it as a way, as a really, really good and strong and, and one of the best ways, um, not just in terms of what you can get for success, but in terms of um, quality of experience and validation of individuals uh, to contribute and to do to technology. And so from there, I really, it really took me in a, it was to, really was a straight line towards Ubuntu and Canonical. Um, what really, what really attracted me to it all was the uh, the vision, if you will, the mission statement of Ubuntu, which was uh, which has always been Linux for human beings, right? Making it making technology available and making it easy for people to to do their own thing, and and not having uh, the best of technology 
abstracted from people just because uh, they live somewhere else or they um, or they or they work on on different things. And so that's what's really driven me here. That's what took me to uh, product management at Canonical to hopefully sort of drive that roadmap and drive things um, in that kind of direction. And it's also what brought me to the community side because as um, as Canonical grows, it means um, there's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of effort goes into the commercial side of things and to getting things going and starting to make uh, Ubuntu uh, entirely and fully self-sustaining. Um, it's public knowledge that Canonical um, is 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 turning over. It's, it's fully it's, it's self-sustainable, even if um, it can it can sustain the development of Ubuntu in and of itself and on its own. And while that happens, we we don't want to lose focus on the community side of things and the the open source nature of everything. And that's, that's really wanted, I, what I wanted to get into and really wanted to focus on. And um, yeah, does that answer your question or did I just ramble a little bit too much? I can answer for Chris there, and that definitely does because um, I wanted to pick up, well, I'd actually pick up on one of the, the things you mentioned is, is really that mission mm -hmm. to bring the free software. Um, I mean, how much is that, how does that manifest itself in terms of, um, apart from obviously, uh, building on Ubuntu and, and supporting the community there, are there any other initiatives that, that, um, uh, Canonical has in that area? So, uh, we, it, we try to have it manifest in this, is in whatever we can have it manifest in a lot of, um, the big projects and products and things that Canonical works on. Is done. Um, it's done in an open source way. It's contributable, and it's doing all of these things. And a lot of uh, what we try to do with the likes of uh, the Ubuntu desktop, for example, is is make it as available as possible, while uh, while still being free and and open. But have but in order to sustain these kind of things, that's when we look at uh, enterprise solutions and commercial opportunities with big players. So if you look at the clouds, um, I like to say, and I'm not sure if anyone else says this, but I like to say that clouds these days aren't really made of water. They're made of Ubuntu, the big public clouds. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the laugh. I needed that. Um, and and that's uh, a common uh, choice of, of uh, distribution on, <laughs> on those. Um, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> no problem. And that's where, and so that's where, um, a lot of a lot of time and sort of research and a lot of innovation goes in Cyclonogus towards those kinds of um, towards those kinds of deals, and so that money can be put straight back into the development and the and the innovation within the technology that we that is things like the desktop, which people can use all over the world, uh, and we've seen these things too. So for specific projects, um, we are moving with. Uh, which we try to move with the times, try to move with things. And so there are things um, in two sections. There's things on the sort of cloud side of things where you've got uh, virtualization technologies like LXD or Multipass where Coracle puts a lot of resources and same with things like um, MicroKates and OpenStack and the big cloud native buzzwords, if you will. And then there's innovation on the devices, the more IoT side of things where you have the likes of um, microkates, micro Kubernetes, and you have things like um, Snaps and and the Snap Store and um, and that kind, those kinds of technologies. That while we work with big players, we work with some of the biggest players um, that are out there. Uh, we try and 
make it so that the, the, the money and the funding and the things that come from those big things definitely trickle back down into the, not even trickle, but fall straight back down into the development of these technologies that, um, that we try and move toward that mission. <clears throat> Sounds very interesting. Sorry, Martin, you want to go next? No, no, you carry on. I didn't yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Changing tack a little bit, given the fact that Ubuntu is a spin of probably, apart from, beside Red Hat, the most widely used distribution in enterprises called Debian. Maybe you can shed a little bit of, of light on where actually Ubuntu came from and why Mark Shuttleworth chose Debian as as the upstream distro. Yeah. Uh, so I, I imagine um, the two of you know more than uh, have more experience and know more about where Ubuntu came from in the beginning, but I can speak to it a little bit and the relationship with Debian there. So obviously Ubuntu is... Um, is downstream um, to Debian. It's it's, based, it's a Debian-based distribution. And it came, and what it came about, uh, where it came from was, well, I, again, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't speak for, for Mark himself, but where I see it came from is um, Debian in those days, as I understand, I don't, I wasn't uh, involved in those days, but Debian as it stands in those days was very good. And it was this Linux distribution. It was changing things. It was, it was doing all the things that Ubuntu wanted to do, but it wasn't doing it. Um, it might, well, it probably, it wasn't doing it in such a way uh, where it was uh, long-term and, and, and regularly and structurally viable. And so the, one of the things that Ubuntu wanted to do was was to turn that into a regular, into a regular thing, and to standardize it and make it accessible to uh, to humans. To, to not humans, I mean humans can go with Debian, right? But to make it accessible to your your average user, if you will, right? If Linux uh, in the beginning was going to take off, it needed to be accessible in that way, and the likes of uh, things as it existed then, it wasn't. Um, wasn't approachable for necessarily approachable for the new person and so on. And so in the beginning when Ubuntu started coming around and it was, it was a smaller group of people contributing all over the world and they'd send out the CDs and I'm sure people out there still have the CDs, right? They'd send them and they'd say, right, work on it and contribute and develop on it. And, and it, it, it became that much more approachable. It became that much more accessible and having, um, Debian was likely wasn't able to do that in the same way because of how it had started and how it was the foundations for for lots of different things, and how it was trying to do all of these different things in a very sort of technical way. And so Ubuntu took that in a in a more um, accessible direction and really focused in on making it uh, simple and making it um, approachable to uh, the average user. And that's something that I think uh, we still aim a lot for today. We, we still focus on. While I like to think and I like to say that um, it's, a, it's it's the most popular distribution for your average developer, which I think is true. It's also, in my experience, the most approachable distribution for for new people, for people who are getting started. When I was getting started, not terribly long ago, with Linux and getting things up and running, it was it was a bish bash bosh up and running get it on my laptop and I can, and away I can go. I don't need to think of it as this, this thing that you have to get to work. It was just something that worked. Right. And, um, and that's where, 
that's I think one of the ways in the beginning that Ubuntu became successful and was able to and was able to uh, to succeed. It's an interesting perspective indeed, yes, because full disclosure, I'm an Arch package maintainer, among very many other things. When I started with Arch, Arch wasn't the most approachable distribution for beginners. <laughs> uh, Manjaro has, has, of course, changed of this course. a little bit, but I reckon, especially with the, with the likes of the Ubuntu spins, and I'm particularly talking about Mint here, Mint has, I think, alongside Ubuntu itself, helped to lower the bar with regards to, I have a USB stick, I just put it into my machine, it guides me through the install, and within a couple of minutes, maybe 15, maybe 20, I have a working system, has come a long way. Such a long way, such a long way. And it's and it, and it's and it's that exact sort of um, ability, that sort of procedure where you could just get it on a USB and plug it into your laptop and away you go, that... Um, Debian enables, and then folks like Mint and, and Ubuntu can uh, can capitalize on and make it so their users, so that their distributors are approachable to to non Linux or non technical people, right? What what I would love to be able to do, and I I'm confident I could do with a lot of relatives right now, is just hand them a USB stick and say, hey, why don't you try this? And they could go, oh, what is it? And I can say, well, just click these two things and then follow the instructions, and away you go. Nothing dodgy to see here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing dodgy to see here. It's just an operating system, I promise. Yeah, fair enough. All right, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned, I mean, obviously the, the typical, uh, applic- oh, well, um, not typical, but you mentioned a few applications of, of where uh, you've been sure. to use and Canonical puts his efforts and uh, the desktop, the, the server side, the cloud. Um, uh, you didn't mention the uh, the WSL part of that. Um, how, oh my how, goodness! How, how big does that feature in, in your or in, in your work or in Canonical's uh, uh, you know, priority that... or, or level of importance, whatever you want to call it? <laughs> well, thank you for catching that one. I did miss that out. And if if Sohini, if you're listening, I apologize for missing that out. Sohini is our product manager for WSL, and she's. Um, She's very passionate about working with Microsoft to make WSL a good experience. And yes, it is uh, definitely a priority of ours to make sure that um, that Windows users specifically, obviously, at WSL is uh, is has people, Windows users have a good experience using Ubuntu on on Windows. For the, I'm sure, no one in the audience doesn't know, but I'll say anyway, Windows. Uh, WSL is the Windows subsystem for Linux, and it's it's a piece of software that you can run on Windows, which uh, which, which just lets you use Ubuntu instead, and that for me is great because I um it means when I go to places that have Windows machines or if I if I if I ever get myself a Windows machine, I can change my mind immediately and just use that instead. I mean, it's still the default userland, right? I mean, full disclosure, Ubuntu was the first userland that ran on WSL 1.0. We are now Mm -hmm. uh, at WSL 2.0 as in a real kernel running on top of the microkernel, which is the foundation for something called Windows, Uh, formerly known (laughs) as Windows NT as a new technology. But we're talking about, what, 25 years back, but that's a totally different ballgame. Watch (laughs) out for the upcoming episode, uh, Series 27, Episode 124, where Windows came from and why it's obsolete. But that's that's, that's a teaser. (laughs) Okay, jokes oh, aside. No, the, um, uh, why Windows is now open source. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there you go. That's the one. Uh, Martin was open source before its demise. <laughs> the 
that's a different story anyway. No, jokes aside, I was kind of, I wouldn't say surprised, but it was kind of certainly uh, a different tack on, on the whole thing when Microsoft actually chose Ubuntu as the first user land for something called WSL. Needless to say, other user lands are now available. I think it's just a matter of selecting the right one from the Windows Store. And then you have a an open SUSE, then you have a de- native Debian of course, CentOS and Fedora are also available. It all started actually with, with Ubuntu. Any particular insight on this? Why Microsoft chose actually Ubuntu or why Ubuntu chose Microsoft to be, to be part of this WSL effort? Good, uh, good question. In the beginning, so I don't, I don't know a tremendous amount. In the beginning, um, I think it was just that they were, they were using Ubuntu already. So they created, they made WSL and they wanted it going. And, and for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not privy to their decisions as uh, they were using Ubuntu. And then we uh, got involved. They started talking to us. We had a, um, an engineer by the, names of, by the name of Hayden Barnes and an engineer by the name of, um, of Patrick, who were WSL engineers before joining Canonical. And then they joined Canonical and they, they focused on that relationship and developing uh, the, the Ubuntu experience on the on WSL, and so we were able to uh, to work with them and to contribute and to uh, and to make Ubuntu a, a, a strong and a, and a good experience. I think I think that's the the reason. Um, as, well, I, I I imagine that's the reason that Ubuntu is is that it's the default at the moment. It's because we were we were there with them. We were we were helping them make make sure things work to make things happen, and so. Um, just just by comparison to other distributions who maybe weren't able to or didn't get involved in that those kinds of relationships, we were able to, to sort of to sort of sneak in there. But as you say, you can you can click and choose other distributions while you're on your Windows computer. So no one feels like they're um that they're locked in, even though they're already on Windows. So they maybe they are, but you know. On a on a similar subject, over the years there have been various, let's put it this way, speculations assumptions, that sort of thing. Alan Pope, Martin Wimpress, if you're listening, you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That Microsoft is actually putting some money on the table for for a company called Canonical. Not just (laughs) because they have a nice logo and they were the first user land that was available in WSL, but rather for their innovation and tax stack that they would bring to the table. Needless well, to say, I won't ask about any kind of detailed <laughs> insights, but what's uh-huh. the general gist on this? I mean, is, is Canonical still up for sale in that <laughs> case to Microsoft or other, or other companies? Uh, well, I, I can say that we have, we have some very nice logos and I can categorically say that, uh, it's not up for sale. No. Okay. Um, not to Microsoft or to, or to anyone. So as even- far as I know. So even if, if Martin and myself, the two of us in between us, would put some money on the table, that won't be, that won't happen. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, well, hang on. You didn't mention you two are putting money on the table. That's a whole different ball game. How much are we it's, talking here? Uh, two pounds, two pounds fifty? <laughs> Maybe three? I'll, I'll have to, ta- I'll have to take it in turn. I'll speak to Mark. I'll speak to Mark about it. Okay. No jokes aside, Mark. And go ahead. I think you had a question. Well, it's on a, on a more uh, sort of open source note. <laughs> um, there have been some some complaints in the past about uh, you know Ubuntu's community efforts and, and all that mm. kind of stuff. And I guess you know yourself being a, a community 
uh, outreach person. Um, how, how have you experienced that, and what has changed? I guess in, to make that a uh, you know a less of a, a criticism on of, of canonical. Let's put it that way. It's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, it's a very. It, it's it's a very valid criticism, right? So it was a, It was. It's. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't a good. Um, we didn't have a community uh, team for a while. We didn't have these things. So let me let me let me roll it back a few years before I joined the company. Um, there was a state of things where there wasn't a dedicated community team. There was a an advocacy team which was focused on Snap, on Snappy, on Snaps specifically, and there were um, various smaller, well, various subsections of the Ubuntu community around various sort of projects and products at Canonical. So uh, you had the Snap Advocacy team, which were probably the loudest and the most active. That's where you saw the likes of Alan, and that's where you saw uh, the likes of Martin put in their efforts. And then there were other smaller sub subsection communities around products and projects like um, like Juju, which is a, a cloud thing, or things like Magricate, which is a Kubernetes thing, or things around Snapcraft and SnapD and all of these different sort of projects and products. And what um, we were doing in that way is we were trying uh, to to build community up around these things instead of um, instead of focusing in. So uh, the Snap community started to come alive. Um, I imagine you've heard or have been on. And if you haven't, you should absolutely go to the forum uh, for Snapcraft. That's forums.snapcraft.io. Um, um uh, where Please, the, sorry, b before we go any further, I reckon there are two listeners yes. out of our four who do not know what snaps are. Maybe you should explain what snaps what? are and why they're important for Ubuntu. Are you saying 50% of your users don't know? Oh, no. um, let me, I'm guessing, yeah, I'm course. guessing. <laughs> so very, very simply, snaps are um, sort of application containers that you can use uh, to package your software in a way that is... Um, one, it's it's available to install across distributions. Two, it's it's secure and it uses sort of container technology to make sure things are secure. But three, probably in my opinion, the most uh, the most the biggest pull for snaps is that it makes them uh, highly available to people. It makes them simple so that you can just go. Um, you can not worry about the packaging or the format or whatever you can think of oh, what application do I want? Oh, okay. I'll just get it over there, you know? And, and that's not to say there's also for those 50% of users, there's, a, there's, uh, there's some controversy around snaps. There's been controversy around snaps over the years. And uh, it's important to note that snaps aren't the only way of doing things. They're not, they're not the best way of doing everything. They're a very good way to do some things, but it depends on the use case and the application. And for the right use cases, snaps are, um, are really good, really easy, and really approachable to people. Now, which is where a lot of the community effort was going, a lot of the outreach was going. And um, over the past two years, while I've been at Canonical, I was able to see some really, really great work being done by um, people we mentioned earlier around Snaps and doing that advocacy and building that community and building out. And it was and it was really interesting and good to see. And I joined. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I wanted to be doing. So I did some, as a product manager, I did some sort of community um, adjacent type things. I did the developer survey for the 2004 release. I did um, some talks and some presentations at various conferences in this model of focusing on different projects and products and building communities around them. But um, 
for a while the overall sort of state of the Ubuntu community in general, uh, I think it's fair to say was declining. And there was a lot of very valid criticism around uh, the fact that it at least looked like, um, which is really all that matters to a community like this, right? It looked like the community was declining and Canonical wasn't giving it as much attention as perhaps it could or perhaps it should. And so um, I'm not sure where the where, where you guys get your information, but and so a number of months ago on the old Ubuntu discourse, and uh, that's uh, discourse.ubuntu.com, um, there was a long thread, which is where I saw the inception of this whole thing of a discussion around um, the importance and the investment in the Ubuntu community and um, our benevolent dictator Mark was in there and discussing and talking about these things. And that's where this sort of, we're calling it a reboot of the Ubuntu community came from because we recognize um, that the community teams, the community itself and Canonical weren't giving it enough attention as it deserved, as it really deserved. And so what happened was we reinstated or we rebooted, I'm not exactly sure of the details, the community council, uh, which is a group of Ubuntu members who who are really there to um, to sort of moderate Ubuntu member discussions and to, and to talk things through and to be a guiding a guiding hand. And one of the, the biggest part of this for Canonical was just sort of reboot of the uh, community team, which is what I am now a part of. Um, you can read about that on the Ubuntu blog where we, if you just Googled Ubuntu community reboot, I'm sure it will come up. Or you can go over to the discourse and, and look around there. Chris, are you going to say something? Links will be in the show notes, yes. Oh, wonderful. Well, then look at the show notes. Um, yeah, so which is which was the, the big thing in Psychonauticals. So that's the team that I'm on now with uh, my friend and colleague, Monica, and our uh, manager, Ken, who is hopefully who is an interim manager because she, he is um, the engineering manager for the desktop team as well. So but me and Monica are here now to to sort of shepherd uh, canonical back towards the Buddha community. Not that it was ever far away, but back towards it. The way I like to look at it, and have always liked to look at it, is canonical isn't a separate entity, and it's not an overarching entity. A canonical is and should be a contributor to the Ubuntu community, and that's what we're sort of here to facilitate now. So we uh, we liaise with developers and other communities and community members, and we liaise with canonical, and we sort of react as that conduit between the two. And I could talk about all the sort of initiatives that we're doing, but um, yeah, that's the sort of state of things at the moment. So the cri the criticism in, um, of however long ago it was now, a year, less than a year ago, was very valid, and, and it's and it's important we recognise that and and realise that, that we were we were doing something wrong. Um, but yes, this is what we're doing now to hopefully to to rectify that. Interesting perspective. Uh, going back to the snap thing, um, <clears throat> about half a year ago, maybe a year ago, there were some voices, there were some voices in the community, let's put it this way, um, who weren't exactly pleased with the way snaps were going. For example, the, de <laughs> the decision by Canonical to, to package Chromium, or Chrome for that matter, just as a snap, Instead of a pro, uh, instead of a true Debian package, raise some concerns. Mm. Um, can you elaborate, perhaps, a little bit on this? Yeah, Why I can. I can. Yeah, 
Go ahead. I can I can elaborate a little bit. I'm sure there's um I've seen this I've seen this uh, talked about in a number of places online, and my uh, ex colleague and friend Alan Pope has done some wonderful explanations of this. So I'm sure we can find some links to put in the notes because I'm not entirely privy to it as I wasn't the um, I wasn't sort of uh, part of that charge. But what it effectively, as I understand it, what it came down to was um, it ended up the desktop team uh, who look who maintained that snap and who were looking after it. We're having to maintain the dev package and the and the snap, and uh, what it came down to was the fact that the the snap itself was a lot easier to maintain, a lot less work. It had a lot of um, had a lot more users than the dev package, and so we made they made we made the decision to to just support the snap. Uh, now that decision was was made um, publicly and it was announced long before the controversy. I think the problem was that we didn't <laughs> announce that far and wide enough. And then sometime later, um, the other distributions, when they uh, rolled forward, they realized this and it, and it looked as if we were sort of sneaking the snap in, uh, into, into, into their releases, which wasn't the intention. Of course, that was never the intention. And we, we thought we had announced it, although we definitely could have done a better job. Uh, and so that and so that was where the controversy kicked up, and people thought we were trying to push snaps down people's throats. But when the reality is, we want to uh, we want to use snaps when snaps make mo- the most sense. And in that case, for us, resources wise and updatability wise and and uh, keeping up to date wise uh, was the main thing. And then, of course, since said controversy, um, there's been a couple of I know I I know um, Alan and a couple of other people have done sort of explainers like this in interviews and there's a blog post out there that you can read through to to see the full reasoning uh but all of that is is, is quite fading from my memory but i hope that mm. i hope i haven't said anything too wrong there uh as far as i can recall it Popey said something on on the ubuntu podcast around that time and he said that innovation basically it doesn't make it feasible for us to provide mm. their packages so the rate of innovation was outpacing the release cycle cadence and that's mm-hmm. the reason, basically, uh, why I think Canonical, at least according to that statement by Mr. Pope, decided to package this as a snap rather than full-blown Debian package. And uh, but I think the notion or the maybe the misconception in the community was that actually one of the biggest Linux distros was becoming just a container for for snaps. Well, so I'll just I just want to tweak uh, that a little bit there because uh, I'm almost certain. Then Alan wouldn't have said that uh, that's the case for all devs and for all things that because it makes a lot of sense and we want to have a lot of devs inside of Ubuntu. But just for the rate of innovation of the Chrome uh, package specifically, specifically, made, yes, exactly, yeah, um, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, so exactly. So there was a lot of concern around Ubuntu becoming uh, this snap-only thing, which uh, which just isn't true. You can look and see the uh, dev packages in there, and we we still like it. We still push. We still have a lot of dev um, package packagers and Debian developers as part of Ubuntu who who don't think that's true either. And um, and yeah, it just made sense for that particular snap. And we did a bad job of communicating that, especially to other distributions. Uh, but but we're learning, and uh, I'll personally make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting because. I reckon Ubuntu's history is sprinkled with attempts and learning curves 
and conclusions, mm -hmm. let's put it this way. APSA probably would be another example for 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 the, for the youngsters in the listenership. Upstart was a system V init replacement, Im originally designed and implemented by by, by Canonical before mm -hmm. System D took over with some release. I think it was sixteen seventeen, right? I can't even remember if it was an LTS or not, but maybe it was a, it was sixteen oh four. Details maybe in the show notes if I can dig this up, where Canonical <laughs> simply buried Upstart in favor of System D, was emerging as the de facto standard, and fair play to Canonical because that shows that actually companies can learn. I, from a technical perspective, I found Upstart quite interesting. Let's put it this way. It was certainly more focused than System D, especially System D nowadays is, because System D, as probably we all know, it is, 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 is encompassing more and more functionality of originally kind of dispersed functionality with regards to programs and general ecosystems. But Canonical picked up the, the trend and simply dropped the upstart and simply replaced it with the then emerging industry standard called System D. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually, I don't actually know what to mention. I know about as much as you just described there with the upstart thing, but, but it's a good example, you're right, of, of companies like Canonical and Canonical specifically learning from these different things. And there's been a lot of controversial, a lot of controversy, uh, around some of the decisions Ubuntu and Canonical, uh, Canonical has made for Ubuntu over the years. And, um, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that when those decisions are made, they're not made lightly. Uh, and they're made uh, with with the in mind of being becoming and continuing to be accessible, approachable to to new users, and to be able to be um, sustainable. Because Canonical, as companies go, isn't the biggest company, isn't even close to a, a large company really, and it needs to remain sustainable. It needs to remain lean in this way to be able to keep these things going. So picking up. Um, technology that we don't think or don't believe is going to continue to provide that kind of value to users just isn't this isn't the way to do things and that can be applied to lots of different things an, an example i like to think of for example is is mir a lot of people think mir as a, as a technology which is a which is a graphical display server that canonical uh, was was backing disappeared a few years ago uh, but it, it has this bit it's still kicking it's still there there's still uh, developers at Canonical working on it. And the difference between dropping something and continuing to going is we still see and we still get uh, very positive feedback and people coming to us and saying that we like it, that they like it, that things are going well. And they say, this is a very valuable thing. And maybe it's not the thing right now, but it's worth continuing. So that project is still, still gets, um, still gets resources. It still gets people working on it. And then if something gets dropped, maybe like upstart or something else it's because it's not because of loud and angry people online right that's a very usually that's a very small audience it's because uh, the value that we see there for these users for the approachability of Ubuntu just isn't there anymore and we're not afraid to uh, to cut things like that if it does if we can't see it contributing to uh, the ecosystem and the approachability of Ubuntu in the long term then it's a very real possibility that we that we lick our wounds and and move on. If something's winning, why not um, move to that, if you know what I mean?
Okay. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point here that you mentioned that because obviously everybody associates Ubuntu with, with Canonical, right? But there are mm -hmm. more there are other projects that you um well contribute, support. Uh, you mentioned Mir. Um what are the other big ones that, that are of interest to Canonical and more specifically why? <laughs> uh <laughs> you can um kind of shed a little bit of light on that, that'd be great. Sure. Well um uh yeah well there's so there's there's numerous um projects kicking around and things that uh there's resource behind the uh i've got, I've got a list somewhere if i can put it up but um there's imagine mirror which is sort of at the background and the way it works is it, it sort of spans from iot to edge to the cloud and now when you say um most people who know about Ubuntu know about Canonical. I think that's true in certain circles. But there's definitely uh, there's definitely a great, much greater number of people who know about Ubuntu who don't know about Canonical, which is which is sort of a um, so it can, can be a can be a struggle at times in sort of explaining this kind of thing because you don't want to use uh, parallels of other operating systems, but it's um, but it makes things difficult. So the way things that exist. There are, there are projects that sort of contribute to Ubuntu. There are things like the Ubuntu desktop and server uh, and the idea of snaps and things like landscape, which are projects that um, uh, that go that, that go back a long time and they, they contribute to the overall sort of ecosystem of Ubuntu. And then there are projects that are, uh, that are still contributing to the Ubuntu ecosystem but are almost, almost solely uh, backed by canonical things like um, Things like Maz or or uh, or, the, Juju. or or Juju and exactly Maz and Juju and things like Charms and Charmed OpenStacks and Charmed Kubernetes and so on. And these are uh, these are projects that get uh, that get our attention because they're uh, they're sort of ahead of the game in those industries and because we see a lot of value in in making things in the future more approachable and more accessible in the same kind of Ubuntu sort of way. So, as I say, there's projects like Mir, there's projects like Multipass or Ambox or uh, the Ubuntu server itself, Ubuntu desktop itself. There's work that we're doing uh, with things like LXD, which is uh, the Linux, contain Linux containers and um, and just and things like that, which contribute to the idea of value that we can bring to Ubuntu users down the road in or down the road or right now. In, in what they're doing to make things, make this technology more accessible. And then you've got sort of longer term projects or longer term products like um, ESM or Ubuntu Advantage, which focuses more on making sure that even people coming in late or even people using uh, legacy or outdated technology can continue to consume and continue to use these things in the, in the sort of approachable way that we want them to. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, the reason for, for asking the question was because obviously you are a canonical as a commercial company, uh, supporting mm -hmm. this was, uh, and uh, people obviously draw parallels with, with the red hat and all this kind of <laughs> other mm -hmm. based, um, uh, whether it's, it's, uh, an operating system or a database like, um, whatever Postgres or Redis, right? There's always, well, not always, but there are, um, <laughs> there, there are commercial companies, um, uh, trying to make a business model out of this. And I was trying to kind of, get an idea about you know a canonicalized company um how is it trying to you, you mentioned uh, the mission and and how that fits in with with uh, making it accessible to um and putting that money back into uh you know various projects 
uh, makes sense. But at the end of the day, it is obviously a commercial company. So how, how does that kind of, uh, what is the comparative business vision for for uh, for Canonical as the company to, um, yeah, is, is that purely, as you mentioned, to uh, facilitate the Ubuntu and its usage and put money back in the community or is, is there a, you know, a great big um, <laughs> a plan to, you, you mentioned it wasn't for sale, but uh, yeah, what, what <laughs> is the ultimate goal of your uh, benevolent leader? <laughs> I mean, uh, sorry, uh, just a small interlude here. In case yeah. Canonical still needs money after the, after the initial sale of this certificate authority um, of a certain Mark Shuttleworth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's assuming that, that you two don't put enough money together to get it, right? Obviously. Right, okay. Um, we well, contributions from my listeners as well. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's Always. What, four pounds? Wow. Make that a fiver, yes. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, so, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. So, I won't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't speak for Mark. Uh, for Mark's own ambitions, and I and I'm going to be a little bit careful on. I'm, I'm going to stay away from numbers and specifics here because I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say. But I can I can say a lot of things. The idea is uh, for these for for open source companies in general, not not just for uh, Canonical. The idea is you want to you want to give your technology to developers and to users and to contributors in such a way that it's mutually beneficial, i.e. Um, you want to be able to incentivize and reward them for contributing to your technology and really sort of spotlight and highlight what they're doing, right? The uh, the core, really, of any sort of open source project, of anything that's done in this way, is the developers. It's the people who actually work on it. It's people who spend their most valuable thing, which is their time on helping you on contributing to your technology. And what, we really, what you really need to do as an open source company is focus on that and reward that and make sure that that can that's sustainable and that people who are doing that are, are loving it and that there's something that they want to do and they want to keep doing. So while Canonical is a commercial company and, and it's, and it's there to make money and it's, it's, it's the publisher of Pinto in this way, the, all of the money that comes from uh, what Canonical gets, the vast majority of it goes, uh, as, as far as I know, all of it really goes back into growth. It goes back into building up, the projects, the things that we can work on, the things that we want to work on, the things that will make, as I say, this sort of vision of approachability and accessibility Linux for everybody come true. And so there's money, as I say, there's money in the cloud side of things and the, with the public clouds where we sell and we do deals with uh, the biggest players, the people who can very much afford what's going on. There's there's money in what we do with um, Dell and Lenovo and HP and the sort of pre-installed workstations. And there's money on the devices side with folks like like Bosch or with the big players in devices who we who we work with to build these relationships and these other ecosystems of devices and IoT things and really sort of move in that direction. So those are sort of re three pillars. And the the end goal of these things is to keep innovating, is to keep staying at the staying at the front of the pack, staying with the front of the pack and making sure that the technology that people are creating that the innovators of the world are doing uh, is done on Ubuntu so that anyone can access it. Right? That's where the investment goes back into. If if sales on something does really, really well, we'll use it to make sure that we're, we're up there, we're right in front with everybody else. So there's a good example of this is um, in AI, is in AIML. That's a big buzzwordy thing that lots of people talk about. 
but there's a initiative in Canonical whereby we're investing and we're making sure that we're there with things like um, like Kubeflow, which is a which is a Google project that we see a lot of um, a lot of value in, and so we've got people working on that and making sure that that in itself is um, accessible and attainable and approachable for people because that's that's at the front of things. We've done we have support for things like TensorFlow and OpenCV and these kinds of things like that, and that was before, and now we're trying to stay at the front. So the big customers, the big deals and so on that Canonical does, a lot of it goes straight, a lot of it, and as far as I know, all of it goes back into making sure that we can stay ahead, making sure that we can stay there and enable these new technologies to to anyone who's using Ubuntu. And that's really sort of the power of things like Ubuntu. So one of the things that I've been a big part of is our relationship and our uh, movement towards things like the Raspberry Pi. And something that's that I noticed that people really the people got in touch with me just to say was it was amazing how they could stick Ubuntu on their Raspberry Pi, this thing that they just got off the internet on this credit card size computer that they got for what 40 pounds, if that. They could stick it in there. And then all of a sudden they had access to all things open source because a lot of the investment that we do goes straight into making sure that those kinds of technologies are a sort of a the words that I like to use are like, sort of like a first class citizen on Ubuntu. Does that make sense? Did that answer uh, your question? Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. it did, yes. Leaving, or, or actually, if people want to check out Ubuntu, they do not have to go to a Raspberry Pi. Actually, <laughs> they can go into their cellar and log on to their Linux One system. <laughs> Leaving the hipster subjects like deep learning, machine learning, and Raspberry Pis for, um, um, on the side for a split second. Do you know what Linux One is? Reece? No, I, I don't. I don't, you don't. think so. If you lock onto your mainframe tomorrow morning, uh-huh. first thing, if you go onto your ordinary LPAR, um, uh-huh. depending on how it's configured, you, you have the choice of a rel compatible user land or something called Ubuntu. Oh. So these would be the two primary distros as in user lands that IBM supports. And let me shed a little bit more of, 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 of additional light onto what Linux One really is. The whole thing started about 50 years ago when IBM decided that computers were the way forward in terms of mainframes. Mm, were they right? Little, little known <laughs> fact, they actually invented the first um, virtual machine uh, hypervisor. Back in mm-hmm. 72, it's called it's named VM as a virtual machine. Uh, th- things have have come a long way since then. If you buy a brand new mainframe these days, whether it's entry level or whether it's mid level, doesn't matter. The whole thing comes virtualized already in terms of hardware support for virtualization out of the box. You don't have to install any additional software. It can run multiple operating systems on its core right away. And if law, if current law is anything to go by, actually the numbers with regards to people that are still relying on something called ZOS, I think it's Mm -hmm. still called ZOS. I might be wrong, but check out the current IBM marketing literature for the details is actually declining. And there are current, there are voices inside IBM, especially after the Red Hat acquisition saying that Linux is the strategic way forward for old or for old and big iron. If you take a look at the annual reports of a company called IBM, you see that a significant chunk of the revenue is actually coming from that department that still does mainframes, only slightly technically more advanced than 50 years back, it's needless to say. But going forward, 
IBM is making a bit, a big stride of actually consolidating quite a few distributed systems like your ordinary kind of server clusters onto a single mainframe instance. And they're doing that in a fashion that actually from a cost perspective, depending on a particular use case, it does actually make sense. So instead of running 10 or 20 servers in your cluster running Oracle workloads, you simply buy one box. I'm simplifying mm. things a little bit. That sure. runs Linux and where, where Oracle, where these Oracle workloads are then consolidated on one machine. You don't have to maintain 20 machines. You only have to maintain one machine. And as I said, two user lands are stand, uh, are available per default. And that's actually RHEL and Ubuntu. So yes, not only is Ubuntu recognized in the enterprise space, actually the, the biggest enterprise company on the planet selling enterprise hardware called IBM is acknowledging that with that fact. Well, that's wonderful. That's good. I mean, if they if if they happen to be one of your four people listening, that's, that's yes. great. I will, I'll let um, them come and say hello to me, and I will say thank you. Absolutely. IBM, if you're listening, the email address is sponsor at linuxinlaws.eu. <laughs> Cash donations are welcome, but we do take mainframes <laughs> as well. No worries. Mark, <laughs> you had a question to us, both. Yeah, I wanted to get a, I mean, you've been, uh, you've been doing this for a couple of years, I think, uh, on the, on the Ubuntu mm-hmm. side. Um, how, how do you see this panning out, right? I mean, there's obviously, there are many lived and distributed out there. Uh, Ubuntu is one of the most popular ones, et cetera. Obviously, next. But, um, how, how do you see the next, how do you see Ubuntu's future, uh, panning out? I mean, uh, just looking at it from a, uh, you know, sort of, I stand the point of view there are many, many Linux distros out there. Right? <laughs> and, uh, mm. um, uh, yes, uh, I run Ubuntu myself as well. Fine, but uh, me too. Uh, it's kind of why um, there is a great diversity. And uh, how do you see that panning out in, in the, over the next uh, five years, ten years? So let me let me answer the question, and then let me turn that question to the two of you because I'd be interested to hear what, what you both have to say as well. Because that's that's a question for. Um, for someone much more in the know than I am. But so the way I see it going is you're right. There is, we've got, we have enough distributions, right? Every, hopefully these distributions can continue to coexist and hopefully we can all get along and everything will be happy days. Where I see the next uh, sort of big thing, where the next things will be happening, isn't necessarily with the hipstery stuff that we talked about before with the likes of AI and deep learning and, and all of these things. That's That'll be there. I'm sure, but that, I don't think that's where the focus of these things is going to be. I think the focus of things like Ubuntu and the distributions, the focus is going to switch from this uh, operating system layer to uh, something higher up, right? We've seen the the growth and the popularity of things like uh, Kubernetes, which is this sort of management layer. But what's coming next, in, in my view, and that what I think uh, people will agree with is is applications and things that you can do, things that you can uh, interact with things that you can work with and then how all of those things work together. So while we don't need any more distributions, like you're saying, we, we do need more applications. We do need more cross compatibility. We need to do all these things. And because of the history of Linux, because of the history of these different distributions and how these things work and how they don't necessarily fit together, we as an ecosystem are sort of a little bit behind, right? You look at um, things like Apple, people like Apple who have um, this one thing, they have this one thing. And so if you build it for this thing, it'll work on all of their things, uh, which puts us, which puts us behind a little bit, right? But 
But the future of where these kinds of investments could and should be going is to things that complement those applications. So things like WSL, things like management platforms, things like an IoT management platform like the Snap Store, things like a desktop application management thing like Snap Stores, and things like um, cloud management platforms like um, uh, like like a Juju or a or or an equivalent, right? Where you have these places where apps, which is the thing that is going to grow, it's where the, it's where um, it's where people are going to start looking more, where these things need to live, and that's where we as a Linux community need to need to sort of come together and to make sure these things happen. Because um, I gave a talk a about a month ago now at the Linux App Summit LAS, uh, where I talked about um, applications on ARM and how the ARM ecosystem with the uh, with what's happening at the moment with NVIDIA uh, and Apple Silicon, how there's, a, there's, there's this weird, unique opportunity uh, in Linux to sort of, to really capitalize on what's going on. Because if NVIDIA is getting involved, there's going to be a lot of money involved in putting a lot of effort into making ARM the place to be and the place to work. And we've seen with the likes of Apple's M1 computer, how desktop hardware is going to start moving that way. And if Apple are doing it, you can be sure other people are going to do desktop class ARM hardware. And so there's this future place where these things can go. But if you look online at the moment, if you just Google apps on ARM or applications on ARM architecture and so on, you don't see any Linux stuff. You see a lot of mobile stuff, and that's where it shows us that there's a gap. But, but after the mobile stuff, you see a lot of Apple stuff and you see a lot of Windows documentation. And so what I think this is an opportunity to do is to come together and figure out a way, well, it's easy, obviously, it's easy to say, but figure out a way to work together on this sort of application ecosystem and be there first and get there with ARM applications that work on ARM for this new class of hardware that's incoming and then become that front runner, become the place where you go for, oh, okay, if you've got some ARM hardware, of course, you'll just you'll just install a Linux distribution. It doesn't matter if it's Ubuntu, it doesn't matter if it's something else. You'll just install the Linux distribution and you'll use, you'll use those ARM packages. You'll use those ARM applications because... Well, because that's that's what that's where all the applications are, right? And it's a matter of um, it's a matter of those applications. It's a matter of, and that's a sort of a microcosm to different industries at the moment, where the platforms are really starting to have to get ready for this wave of applications and how you consume them and how you manage them and blah 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 blah. But so that's a sort of long-winded way of saying that, yeah, I think the future really is um, lots of things, but applications are going to be super important for the likes of. Linux distributions. Sorry, until I, I have to say this, Reese, but until yeah, um, until such time as Canonical decides not to support a, a typical, a, a certain, not typical, but a certain ARM v7 far, um, 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 chip as an SOC, because that ex that exactly happened to something called Computer Labs Utilite. Um, I bought this gadget in 2016, and Canonical decided to end support for this SOC, including the user land with 18, I think, 1804. And, on V7? Uh, this particular SOC, uh, where, you simply oh, would put a, yeah, uh, where you simply would put the Ubuntu uh, image on, on the SD card and could boot it. Because mm -hmm. after that, you would have to resort to compiling your own kernel, maintaining the user land yourself, probably patching even upstream package, packages. And that wasn't great, to be to be honest with you. Yeah, um, well, it, uh, 
so it, it doesn't sound great, right? It doesn't sound like um, a good experience. It doesn't sound like the way things should be going. But uh, with think about the ecosystem of those kinds of devices or these ARM devices and and think about the, the capacity and the capability of a company like Canonical. There's no way um, at the moment, there's no way we'd be able to cover everything like that, right? So no, that's I, I get it. But the silver lining, of course, was actually this introduced me to something called Alarm, as in Arch Linux on ARM, which I've okay. been running on most of my ARM calls, which are not running Android ever since. And that's that really cool. introduced me to ARM big time. And otherwise, I probably I wouldn't probably be a package maintainer for ARM. Really? Well, there you go. Well, that's good to hear. But what I was what I was going to there is um, that, and, and and I think that's a huge shame. I wish I wish we could do all of those things. We could do all of those uh, specific SOCs. But that's why the focus now needs to be on things on ARM specifically and, and enabling the most popular, the most the best things. Not the most not the best, but the most popular things and the things where people the places are going. Like Raspberry Pis, but then you can say a similar thing for the for the up and coming, if you will, the underdog of of Risk Five, that sort of new architecture that people that people are sort of talking about in the back rooms and making sure that Ubuntu is is there and and there along the way, and so that, like I was saying before, so that we're running in front and making sure that anyone using Ubuntu will be able to do it on these platforms and use these things in the right way. Because you're right, it's a shame that things like that don't have as much attention as they probably could, but yeah. Tiny, tiny hint. Um, if you're targeting desktop systems for RISC-V, make sure your, <laughs> mandar- make sure your Mandarin is in order because this is what China is getting into big time. If the current news is anything to go by, I think because mm. uh, they cannot get hold of, of ARM licenses. So they are doing their own RISC-V5 thing in terms of laptops. So if you buy a laptop, I reckon within a one or two years time frame in China, Chances are, if it's not Intel-based, and Trump did a pretty good job on the, on, on the embargo <laughs> side of things, uh, it's going to be the Risk Five variety running probably some sort of Linux. Indeed, and if if any of your um, four listeners want to start talking and start thinking about Risk Five, you head on over to the Ubuntu Discourse and have a look at the Risk Five conversations going on over there because it's super fun. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on the, on your previous uh, statement around the um, applications piece. Um, what, what specifically are you thinking of here? Um, is this applications for uh, home users, for enterprises? Is there something specific you have in mind? Is like an app store type scenario, right? Or, or just, is there anything specific that you um, have in mind there? Because obviously on Linux you have lots of, uh, uh, there are, uh, you, you want to have your uh, Whatever it is, um, Microsoft alternatives, there is uh, open yeah. and all this kind of stuff, right? So, is, is that what you're thinking, or where, where's the thinking now? For, for me, for me specifically, it's all home use, it's all consumer right. users and all that kind of thing. There's, um, so there's a million and six applications out there, right? Mm-hmm. But there's only 10% less than that that people actually use, and that, the, that a lot of people use that have a strong and viable user base. Um, and then there's a subset of that again which is general users and casual users and so on. So a lot of the applications that go forward that need to happen will be ports of other applications. They need to support other architectures. They need to support the platform, blah, 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 blah. Um, But if for me, it's all about the individual developer, the individual smaller communities that are building their applications right now for the first time or they're learning about it or whatever. And how can they... uh, make an impact? How can they 
do things in the way they want to do it. And if you're a developer right now and you don't know anything about anything, you just know that you want to make this application that, um, I don't know, that turns on your front door camera and then sends some information to a cloud and then does all of this stuff. If you start looking around for how to do that right now, you don't find um, in what is, in my opinion, the best stuff. You don't find the way to do it with through Linux. You don't find the way to do it through open source. You don't find the way to do it through uh, with multiple architectures and so on and so forth. And so for me, my, my desire, if I could have one thing for the application space, is for uh, those developers or these small communities who are making their applications for themselves or for their users to be able to see that, to, to be able to see Linux as a viable place to want to develop, right? To be able to see it as a place where, oh, if I, if I put it just for Linux, it'll get a lot of attention. People will be interested in it and it'll become a thing and it can continue to grow and then continue to succeed. And that does exist at the moment. That does happen. Of course it does. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I just love to see more of that, right? For me, it's all about the individual user. Now, before I forget, let me turn the question around on the two of you and and ask you where you think, what you think the future is. Where do you think it'll be in five, ten years? Um, that's a very interesting question because I was just going to answer that with regards to a specific perspective. If you take a look at the big consumer market, and I'm talking about prepackaged mm. applications running on maybe embedded, maybe tiny systems comparable to something called the NAC, as in uh, Intel's idea of next unit of computing, these Gadgets would either run a proprietary version of a stripped-down user land or something called Android, which at its very core is, of course, a Linux operating system flavor too. The thing is basically that if you're talking about numbers, the battle has been decided already. The the decision has been made. You're either looking at Android uh, for TV, set-top box, and all the rest of it, or some proprietary stuff where I reckon ordinary users would have a hard time of A, opening up the device and B, installing their own applications that somebody recommended. Because especially in the in the case of these proprietary systems, they're pretty much locked down. That's right. Yeah, that's true. So uh, Android is there in, in everybody's phones and in people's set-up boxes and in people's TVs and whatever. And and I'm not, I've, I mean, but Android's great. The numbers are there, right? Android's one of the top things. I've done some and a little bit of Android development in my time and so on. And it's... um. And it's good and great, but it's also it's also where the big players play and they have their things because you have the sort of Samsung flavor and you have the Huawei flavor and you have all the different flavors of Android. But what I'm talking about uh, for this in the context of, of Linux and in context of sort of um, high level operating systems is things where you can where you can have that full experience. So if, if I use Ubuntu, for example, because of course I will, you can do all of the the bigger development on your desktop on your workstation you can do it in the cloud you can do it on ubuntu server whatever and then there's this thing called ubuntu core where which is a much smaller minimal version of ubuntu where you can deploy it on your devices and and those are the kind of things those kinds of things that get a bit bigger that it get a bit smarter that you're doing a little bit more on that maybe you don't want to use android for and when with this world of iot that people keep saying is coming um you're going to want something a little bit more something a little bit more like a proper Linux distribution, you know what I mean? No, it's interesting because I have a couple of webcams and all of these webcams actually run some sort of proprietary Linux. Uh, oh, yeah? if, you, if, if you're lucky, you can open them up. If you're not lucky, it's down to a hack. Need mm -hmm. to say you can 
you can modify them, let's put it this way, but they wouldn't use any any known packaging packaging system like Packet Manager. If you're lucky, you get O package or I package, but that's about it. Uh, forget mm-hmm. about that. Forget about forget about RPM or something like this. They are nowhere near these standards. And I reckon the smaller you go, like webcams, like other embedded devices, like internet radios. They typically run some sort of Linux, but it's prepackaged and it's closed and it's closed up. So mm-hmm. anything you want to do with it, or setup boxes, next example, anything you want to do with this, either you're the hacker type, but I reckon about a fraction of a tenth of a percent of people buying that kit actually are, or you can live with the stuff that comes prepackaged. Mm-hmm. The trick there though, of course, is if you had a webcam that was um uh, approachable. If you had a webcam that was accessible to anybody else, then you're you're in a bit of a you're in a bit of a pickle, right? Um, but I agree with you in the in that um, if it would be much better if the, the the software running in your webcam, the fifth thing running your thing, wasn't some proprietary snowflake that they've cobbled together and is completely inapproachable and completely unaccessible. But of course, there needs to be some kind of uh, security. It was the word, right, to those kinds of things. And while They've doing the absolutely wrong way of doing the security of those other things, which is closing everything and making it this snowflake that anything could go wrong with and not having that kind of package management and so on. You can see why they can justify, well, why they think they can justify it with um, security and so on. Right? What about what about you, Martin? What do you what do you think? Yeah, no, it's it. Uh, I mean, the fact is, obviously, that not many people want to go around hacking their their devices and and don't have the time time or the inclination because they just work. But by the same token, if there were more uh, approachable or already, um, if there was other people doing it, then it would just be a case of of uh, make the whole process easier and and more uh, popular, right? And it's it's more of a, um, a mm. given that it can uh, improve devices for um, its own purpose. Uh, like, for example, installing a different operating system on a laptop, right? It's, mm. <laughs> it's quite a proven, um, you know, uh, st- standard practice and um, doesn't have any limitations. So, uh, yeah, so, so Chris is absolutely right. You know, all, all the devices I have as well, they're all proprietary and, you know, they do what the job they need to do. And uh, if, if there is nothing really blocking it, I'm not going to mess with them. Uh, oh That's it. <laughs> a certain router comes to mind, right, Martin? Indeed, indeed. Yes. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it comes with with a version of Debian, right? But it's it's all locked down and so on. But it doesn't matter. It does yeah. what it needs to do, and the interface is usable and so on. So, um, but yeah, in terms of future of 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 Ubuntu, mm-hmm. um, personally, I, I'm, I'm uh, well, probably quite a short term Ubuntu user, as in maybe five or so years before that it was all sorts of other uh, flavors of Linux like Solaris and Red Hat and CentOS. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I think one of the observations I have about Ubuntu is its its package availability, right? And, and uh, mm-hmm. the way that's maintained and um, easily accessible in comparison to some of the others. Uh, so yeah, I think Ubuntu as a desktop, um, is a, uh, a good alternative unless you know the the, the biggest downside is is um, you know the, the the rise of Apple in terms of the the, the enterprise market and um, for for home use the lack of um, you know uh, applications on Ubuntu mm. that are for home use uh, for example um, 
you know, uh, not everybody will want to use OpenOffice or um, if people want to play their whatever games they're playing, they're going to have to resort to Windows, right? It's um, mm. So those are all kind of barriers to, to the desktop adoption, uh, unfortunately. Um, but on the server side, yeah, it's it's uh, it's great. So I use it myself as well. And, and many of, of the software deployments that we see in, in many customers, you know, Ubuntu is a very... Uh, Good alternative these days, uh, whereas it all used to be Red Hat. Uh, you see more and more of it. To be fair, and I but Martin, continues to grow. but Martin, wait for it. Full disclosure: <laughs> there's something called five dot thirteen RC one or RC two that does contain support for something called Apple Silicon slash M one as part of the kernel. So it's just a matter of time until ah. we can liberate that platform, right? Mm. So we can liberate why, that platform. Why would you have one in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> because it, <laughs> because it wor- it's a, it's fast, the battery life is excellent, and it yeah. works wonders uh, on on the weekend in a disco. If you turn <laughs> if if you turn up with that yes, machine, given the fact that we're kind of short of two hours now, no, it's it's not that bad. But I think in the interest of time, we should wrap this up. Uh, Reese, there's always mm-hmm. something called the POXs. Regular listeners of the show would probably know what I mean. POXs, of course, stand for Picks of the Week. So if you have anything worth mentioning, like a movie you've seen recently, a book you've read recently, maybe the account number, the credit card number of a certain Mark Shuttleworth knows the time to mention this. (laughs) Oh my goodness, this is the place I can talk about that? Great. Yes, yes, Um, just go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> zero zero uh, no, um, uh yeah actually i something happened to the, so i'm a big i'm a big um uh tabletop rpg dungeons and dragons nerd actually and something got announced today called um from a company called critical role which i think everyone should go and check out that's all that's all i'm going to say critical role everyone right. go and have a look links if you're interested if you're interested yes. in that kind of thing Martin, your your pox, my pox, my pox. I'm still on ashes to ashes at the moment since <laughs> that's a, it's a very uh, yeah it's very entertaining. So um, not finished the series yet. What's that? What series is that? Ashes to ashes. Oh, cool. I thought it was the hands. I thought it was the hands made tale or something. My pox of the week is something called Hazy Jane. Sounds American. Camera, <laughs> camera, American. camera, camera members probably won't know it because it's a real Indian, sorry, oh, New England pale ale. I stand to be corrected. Okay. It's done by a company called Brew Dog. Yes, that, that would be English. Sorry, Scottish. Apologies. <laughs> Yeah, Brewdog for those for those for those people who don't know it, Brewdog is a company with the with the tanks in London and the fancy TV ads and kind of commercial spots and commercials, whatever. And if you're into New England IPAs, I strongly recommend this. Of course, links will be in the show notes. Mm. Brewdog, if you are serious about open source sponsorship, the email address is sponsor at LennoxInlaws.eu. Okay, Martin, before we have to let our guests go, uh, we still have to do some feedback. And by wonder of a, of a miracle, I'm almost tempted to say, some of the late feedback only made it into, onto the HBR uh, website now. So let's go through them. You want to read out the, the feedback or do you want me to do this? I whatever works. It's uh... fair enough. Oh, in that case, let's start with the comment on episode 
35 of season one exactly. The, the comment posted by Bob on the 10th of oh. August. Wait, hang on one sec. We had one by Dragas still before that. Oh, sorry. That yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Okay, so comment by Dragas still on 7th of August, episode number 35, regarding RMS. The number of signatories, signatories of the open letter is not five or six figures, as mentioned in the episode. It is 3,004. By contrast, a letter supporting Richard Stallman, HTTPS RMS support letter gained 6,800 signatures. If the FSFE thinks the matter of right or wrong simply depends on how many people make are made uncomfortable, it should withdraw its statements with unsubstantiated claims, as there are more people made uncomfortable by the lynch mob than by Richard Stallman. Interest, interesting observation, and of course, yes, probably rename the podcast to um, some old age pensioners talking about Linux because yes, <laughs> when we last looked well, at well, the figures, once, once you can't count that, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but then we have machines doing this for us, right? So okay, okay. Now jokes aside, if you take a close look. And this is my interpretation of the matter. Of course, the audience's mileage may really vary. If you take a close look at the supporting signatures on GitHub, you may be under the impression that quite a few of the commits were, let's put it this way, auto-generated. So... Again, pure, pure speculation now on my part. Some people may have written some piece of software that simply, <laughs> with the right credentials, of course, did the right commits, let's put it this way. And again, pure speculation, if you take a close look at the handles, there may be some indication of supporting this pure speculation, let's put it this way. The same, of course, could be said for the for the original letter, but if you, again, if you take a close look at the commit handles, you may be under the impression that this are more often than not real people in contrast to some piece of software doing things. Again, this is my interpretation of the matter, but given the fact that I've spoken to quite a few people who are under the same impression, maybe these numbers, pun intended, are anything to go by. Any thoughts on your side, Martin? Is, is that um, uh, a substantiated claim, or have you made this up? <laughs> uh, no. If you take a look at the handles, they look artificial. Well, but that's kind of, yeah. Um and Martin, proof, no, feel free. And as I said, Martin, what do you think about this? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can't say I've investigated this into detail. However, you know, these numbers are, are fairly small compared to our original claims. So should we be worried? And I mean, there's clearly a divided opinion on this subject from, from both sides. Um, and it's whether you believe in free speech or whether you believe in um, uh, you have certain responsibilities when you exercise your free speech. 
that's what it comes down to. Um, I think something like this will never be completely concluded one way or the other. Correct. Uh, and yeah, that's my yeah. on the subject. Then whether people something, make, make yeah. up votes in one way or the other, it's it's in a way it's irrelevant. It's a um, it's a divided subject, right? So yes. Um, speaking of irrelevant com um, um, comments, no, of course not. Speaking of relevant comments, sorry, Bob wrote on the mm. on the 10th of August, clarification, in the interest of fairness and balance, the RMS open letter gained 3,400, sorry, 3,004 signatures mm. and stopped accepting more after just eight days. The RMS support letter has only garnered 6,800 signatures while still accepting signatures over four and a half months later. You also forgot to mention that 61 organizations are that are party to the RMS open letter. Yes. Yeah, good comment by Bob. In, in, correct indeed, yes. But then, as I said, we have old age playing in favor mm. of us. Yes. Because, yes. Okay. Ab absolutely. And, um, okay, yes, the GitHub stats are something to go about, but I don't think that they tell the full story, but because as already explained about a minute ago, maybe two, these things can easily be automated hmm. they can. at the end of the day. Okay, um, yes. final, final comment on this. Drag still again wrote on the 11th of August, 2021, Clarification, in the interest of fairness and balance, the Armour support letter started one day after the Armour's open letter. On the 1st of April, note the date, when Armour's open letter stopped accepting more signatures, Armour's support letter had 5,000 signatures, sorry, 5,051 signatures, mm. compared with 3,005 signatures on the Armour's open letter. Okay. And the um, the links are in the actual post. Yes, indeed. Okay. Moving exactly. Moving swiftly on. Let's move to the. Yes. Can you read this out? Do you want me to do this? Okay. So, uh, episode thirty-six. A comment by Kevin O'Brien on the 14th of August, and he is saying, another good show. As anyone who listened to my shows knows, I take licensing very seriously. My own view is that if your objective is to expand the free software ecosystem, use the GPL. If your objective is to promote proprietary software, use one of the unrestrictive licenses like MIT or BSD. Well spotted. I'm tempted to add. That's uh, it's quite a handy bit of advice, yeah. I mean, that's exactly the, the thing that we discussed mm. in that episode, needless to say, and also in previous episodes. Going back to the much stressed example of Terminus to be, who changed their licensing model in mid-flight, although Terminus to be, of course, is not closed-source software. But um, the thing is that they moved away from the Feral GPL to a to an Apache license for the adoption reasons simply, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. The same goes for 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 this argument of proprietors of of course using a 
more permissive license, you can essentially do what do whatever you want with the yeah. uh with the software. I mean just take a look at and again I'm beating probably a dead horse here, but just take a look at the ecosystem of free and open source software licensed under a permissive model that the hyperscalers took and turned into a managed business. And they're making a lot of money with that on an annual basis. Ah, sorry, that's my two cents on that argument. <laughs> okay, sorry, yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah. Most, most people are probably familiar with that scenario, but yes, you're completely right. And of course, the example that comes to mind immediately is, of course, Redis. You'll find this with all the hyperscalers and various, under various brands and labels, such as Elastic Cash with the bookshop, uh, memory store with Google and something called Azure Cash for Redis. Exactly on Azure. Um, so yes. And that's that's all. Yes. And exactly. Indeed. And that's all for your wonderful feedback. Mm. Please keep feedback coming, prefer, preferably to feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. But of course, you can also post a comment on the corresponding episode page on Hacker Public Radio. But keep the feedback coming, people. And thank you very much for your feedback. <laughs> Having said that, Reese, thank you again thank for you. Uh, for participating in this episode. Much appreciated. And of mm -hmm. course, we thank Canonical for an absolute smashing distribution. The email address, Mark, if you're listening, is still sponsor at Linux. <laughs> <laughs> we would like to thank his usual HPR for hosting us. And having said that, thank you for listening and see you next time. And bye. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge, but stay for the madness. Thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Tap attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margo, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under Creative Commons at Jamando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. As I said, there are not that many people listening, so there's probably no point in sending out NDAs to, to the three of them. So you'll you'll be glad to know that you now have become a regular part of the roster, meaning you can yeah. take you you can you can you can count for a participation every two weeks for the next twenty years. <laughs> Excellent. There we go. Sorted. <laughs> This is session, this is episode something.
<laughs> this is series, whatever episode. I can't remember if this is the feedback and we are rolling. Rolling. Yes. Uh, of course, the, the immediate example that comes to mind is Elasticsearch versus, versus, um, any other Redis offering. Uh, sorry, Elastic Cash. Yes. So can I, let's do this again. Uh, the immediate. You hear the hair first? Making And rolling and rolling and rolling once again. <laughs> You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.